As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. We are back for another week following a Leafs victory over the Vancouver Canucks. The parade should begin. Oh, yeah, in the Super Bowl. Drancer is really upset about this. His Bengals fell in a painful way. We'll get to that later in the show. because this I'm not is- that upset. I just want to say I'm not that upset at all. Come on. You're I just, upset. No, I just think that was an atrocious holding call on third down. That's it. All right. All right. All right. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not, not buying. I'm, I'm not buying I'm not it. wrong. I, I, you are. We'll wrong. get into it later. We'll you, get into it later. Wrong. All right. So listen. Let's let's talk about um, let's let's talk about something else you're wrong about. That the Canucks win was not full quality against the Leafs. What do you mean I'm not wrong about that? Check my Twitter feed. That's I thought they played fine. I thought they it? played really well actually defensively. <laughs> do you really? Yeah, I do. I I think it's easier to see in the rink than it is if you are watching on television. But like I thought the J T Miller Besser Horvat line played really well to spring a ton of against the grain chances. I thought Kyle Burrows won a ton of battles. Like I thought the defense held up decently well and that the Canucks were actually pretty disciplined about their position and about getting pucks past the Leafs. I thought they manufactured a lot of odd man opportunities. I thought they hit the Leafs on the counter effectively for what they needed to do. I thought they did it pretty well. Now, that's a a nice way to say they kind of got owned, but they had some good chances the other way. Well, but that's how they played once they had a two goal lead. Like they got the two goal lead, right? They hit them on the counter once they capitalized on the power play once. And then they went into a shell game and tried to hit them on the counter. And for what it's worth, they didn't surrender a goal five on five. They manufactured chances the other way. Um, And then the Leafs make one mistake after tying the game with a couple of power play goals. Um, And it's a home run pass attempt to William Nylander that he just couldn't quite handle counter against that. And Lamico scores. They win. I mean, 
I, I don't have a problem with how they executed a game plan that makes a ton of sense. Like, I actually thought for what they were trying to do, they did it relatively effectively. And obviously, they got an absolutely heroic performance from Thatcher Demko. Um, I, I liked the team's performance. Like, credit to them. They, they won that game. And I don't think they were as brutal, aside from maybe a, a, a brief stretch of the second period, as the shot counter or the advanced stats make it look. I thought they were, you know, in control without the puck for a large portion of that contest and, and limited chances, especially in the third period, far better than they had any right to. Um, Austin Matthews had one of the best individual games I've seen on Rogers or in ice and live in a long time though. And I think it's important in the big picture that we step back and notice like when the Canucks defeat an elite team, this is what it tends to look like, right? It's kind of what like, it has to look like. Yeah. Well, that sucks. You know, like at the end of the day, it's not that I credit the effort level. I have no problem with that. I even credit the game plan with the exception that Kyle Burroughs and Travis Hamannick had way too many head-to-head shifts against the Austin Matthews line, considering it was Hamannick's first game back, and woof. Like, he's going to take a bit to be able to match up against elite competition like that, because that wasn't pretty. Um, but, you know, aside from aside from some small, like, matchup quibbles, um, I liked the Canucks game plan. I thought they executed well. I thought they played well. Uh, I really did. I thought it was a really good night out. Like it was an entertaining game to watch. And and we'll get into Demko in a bit. But holy cow, that was a great performance. Um, So full credit to him for all of that. But, you know, if this is what it looks like every time a Florida comes to town or you face a Tampa Bay or you face Colorado or you face Toronto or you face Vegas and like you can grind out games, but it looks an awful lot like it did when you played Vegas in the bubble. Right. It's sort of a hold on by the by your fingernails for dear life kind of game plan. Well, then you're a minnow. Then you're a minnow. Like that's how bad teams win in soccer. Like you're a minnow. And you know, celebrate the win, enjoy it, but recognize what it tells you about this team in the big picture, which is that it takes a pretty phenomenal goaltending, like almost a record setting goaltending performance for you to hang with teams like this. And and you know, for me anyway. I'm not going to stop saying that that's not good enough. Absolutely. Um, it's, uh, you know, if, if, if it's what you want big picture to just find a way to kind of grind out wins. And for all the people that talk about how close the Canucks were to reaching the conference finals. I mean, if you look at that series on form, they weren't close. Yeah. Like the scoring would indicate they were close, but the level of play in all the games would tell you that they absolutely <laughs> they were outshot and, by like a hundred shots. Yeah. No, I, I, <laughs> brutal. I, I'm with you, but you know, you, I gotta be honest. I'm surprised at how complimentary you are. I mean, I thought that in this game, I thought their first period was solid, right? And maybe that was the Leafs kind of sleeping into it a little bit and just not taking the Canucks seriously. But I thought I thought they uh, were right there and they played well or as well as could be expected uh, in the first period. And then after that, yeah, they tried to sit on it and, and it just got ugly in a hurry. And you kind of knew it would, right? I mean, you knew yeah. that at some point, you know, they were going to say, okay, let's wake up here. And, you know, generally, you know, you know, when, when, if the Canucks are going to play the Leafs in most situations, it's going to be a case of, um, they don't need to play well for very long in order to win. Right. Right. So I, I kind of expected that. And then once they got in the power play and they got the goals, then, you know, that was that I thought it was, it was, um, impressive that Lamico came back. They got the goal again against the grain and, and, you know, the third period, uh, what I actually 
thought it was better than I expected. You, you, you know what I mean? I mean, yeah, and, the, uh, the third period was good. They didn't. The Leafs didn't tee off on them in terms of quality, in my view. Like they had, they still had like what over twenty five scoring chances and sure, fourteen high danger, high danger, danger. Yeah, I mean the Leafs are a better team than the Canucks, and they played a better uh, game on form than the Canucks. But I thought, like I kept, you know how I do during a game. I'll be like, oh, I like that. Oh, that was a nice play. Good touch, right? Like I talk a lot through games. You can tell people you sit next to me he, in the press. He talks box. a lot. He talks a lot during games. And yeah. um, and uh, I kept leaning over, and I'd be like, "Nice, good play by uh, good play by Kyle Burrows there. Like smart touch." There was a Jason Dickinson play where he gets the puck behind the net, and he puts it b- b- between his legs to to get a you know pressure outlet to a defender who just sort of goes high flippy. And I thought they were really disciplined about making those types of plays and just relieving pressure, f- going high flippy. Yeah, they'd take another wave, but they sort of didn't seed the type of territory, the type of real estate that Toronto wanted. Um, I thought they played a shell game really well and with and with good discipline. And then their top line in particular, the Horvat line in particular, I thought managed to generate some real quality against the grain. And so I, I sort of look at that and say, you know, if you're going to park the bus, that's kind of what it should look like. Like they executed that well. And so I give them credit. Like I, I actually liked a lot of what happened and I thought they were, you know, not full value because they were massively outchanced and outshot. But I thought they played well within the context of how they wanted to defend that lead. And they came out with the win. What did you make of Bruce Boudreaux's comments after? Was it more a case of, yeah, I know he sucked, but I'm not going to apologize for winning. Or or was it along the lines of what you're suggesting? That, look, this was our game plan, and we executed it better than you might really want to believe or accept. Yeah, I think it was probably a bit of both. Um, you know, I, I think I think Boudreaux's, Boudreaux's teams don't win this way, right? It's not like Boudreaux's Randy Carlisle. So when he says, like, give the guy some credit, like, he's not saying, like, we're going to always win like this because we're inside and you don't understand. He's saying, like, give the guy some credit. Like, they played well. They played well for me. And he should think that. They did play well for him on Saturday night, in my, in my opinion. Um, and I give Bruce Boudreaux, because of the way that he plays, because he wants to control and dictate and outshoot, right? Like, Boudreaux's not a guy who wants to play possum and win that way. That's not who he is. And in fact, you know, again, when you look through how the Canucks played, um, Boudreaux doesn't load the dice enough to really like go into that type of game plan on a, on a consistent basis and win anyway. Like Travis, but if Hammonick you look played, at his games, if you, like stylistically, if you look at the games in Tampa and in Florida, they weren't attempting to play this way. No, no, they weren't. And and I think it was partly a product of them having the two O lead early. But like you know, again, uh, Hamonic ends up playing almost six minutes against the Austin Matthews line. And the Canucks are only outshot two to three in those minutes, uh, which isn't bad. But that's because there's a lot of like misses, you know, like misses high because there are six scoring chances in, in under six minutes of head to head five on five ice time. Um, and it looked scary, right? Like it was like, oh, boy. Oh, boy. And I thought I thought Kyle Burroughs did an exceptional job, like considering that I don't think Hamannick was quite ready. Uh, I thought there was a lot. Well, and I don't mean quite ready from health wise, like he needed to get back, but you can't expect him to play six minutes against Austin Matthews and look really good after the type of layoff he's had in a season in which he's only played nine games. Right. And 
I thought those seams showed like he was having his pocket picked. He was getting skated through. Um, and I thought Burroughs played really well to help stabilize that pair, battled hard. I was really impressed, like really liked his game. Um, you know, I liked, uh, honestly, up, you go up and down, you, you name guys. And I thought a lot of Canucks players just like battled hard, won, won battles, made smart plays, played discipline, played really disciplined to clear the zone, to escape danger, um, just made sort of like high percentage annoying plays to, to get out of their own end. I, I like again. I thought they parked the bus effectively. It's just that I want to see a team strive for more than having to park the bus to grind out wins against the Maple Leafs. And and this goes back too to Rathbone not being up. Right, Boudreaux's like, I am prioritizing defensive play right now. Like we have a good defense at five on five. Right, that's what I'm prioritizing right now. So what Boudreaux's done is he's looked through his team and he's looked at his playoff chances. And he said, my job is to win games and make life hard for Jim Rutherford. And I'm going to win games. And the way I'm going to win games is not how I'd like to win games, but it's how I have to win games with the personnel I've got. And the personnel, like even Boudreaux himself has looked at this roster and said, this is how I have to play to win. Right. He's basically come to the conclusion that Travis Green came to. Right. And was roundly crushed for in this marketplace. And that's why when I talk about this team big picture and I have the luxury of not needing to grind out wins or, you know, uh, do Boudreaux's sort of job. But the, the, when I look at this roster, I say, hey, that's not good enough. Like Boudreaux's saying the same thing while defending them in the media by the tactical choices he's making game to game, by the personnel choices he's making game to game. Like we're actually singing from the same hymn book. And that, I think, is something that fans need to register and, and sort of understand here. Um Boudreaux looks at the Maple Leafs and says, this is how I can beat them. And the way he can beat them is by allowing that type of pressure throughout the game. And that runs contrary to everything he actually believes a team should do to win games. But it's what he has to do to try and grind out points and, and make a late push for the playoffs. That's his job. Uh, good on him for being adaptable. Good on the team for executing his plan or, or executing that hold the lead, park the bus plan with such discipline. I give everyone credit for that. And I give Demko a ton of credit for the win. Like it was a fun night out at the rink. I just think that it also speaks to the limitations of this club. Before we go to break, I do want to talk about Demko because I think that sometimes we take him for granted. You know what I mean? <laughs> like we've had great goaltending in this market since 2006. So it's easy to let Thatcher Demko kind of get washed into all of that and just that become the expectation. But my goodness, I mean, even the two power plug goals, he had absolute zero chance on. And the guy was ridiculous right down to the final second. When they had that goal, the empty netter disallowed because of the offside. In my gut, I'm thinking they're going to find a way to score, right? Like, And right down to the final second, he made a ridiculous save. In the final second, like this guy is completely dialed well, in. And it was Full two time. chances and it was two chances, right? Like it was the, I mean, they, I don't know how Austin Matthews managed to get it down low so clearly and with a cross seam pass to Michael Bunting. Um, but, but he did because Austin Matthews is incredible and he was absolutely shooting fireballs um, in that game. I think Austin Matthews is the best player without the puck. We all know what he can do with the puck and his shooting ability. But I think he is the most in control player without the puck in the NHL right now. Like he is just ridiculously difficult to pass the puck around. Uh, I was so impressed. And then Thatcher Demko, 
I mean, that Tavares penalty, right? Because the Leafs only end up with three shots in the last four minutes, and Thatcher Demko ends up one shot or one save short of the team record. So I think I think it's very possible that the um, Tavares penalty on Tyler Mott late, and what a great forechecking or backchecking effort by Mott on that play, on that sequence. I think that was the difference between Thatcher Demko setting a franchise record and not. He was just ridiculous. He had a pa- uh, stack pad saves on on Mitch Marner. Um, that save on bunting at the as the as m- the moments expired, like you know, it looks sometimes he's so in control. He's so inflappable. He I, like he's a cadaver. I don't even think he has a pulse. It's incredible how cold blooded he is when he goes about his business under siege like that. It was just he was just so dialed. It was it was completely ridiculous. He is so good. He is so so good. I'm I'm beginning to get blown away on a, you know, not an every game basis because Thatcher Demko and, and lots of goalies do that, right? Where they have an outrageous game. But the consistency with which Thatcher Demko seems to be putting in these special performances is becoming something that is, uh, you know, really beginning to register for me. Like he is really special. Is it registering around the league? Like given the fact that he's on a bad team, uh, which is forcing him to play a certain way just for the team to just have any chance on a nightly basis. What has to happen for Demko to get serious Vezina consideration at this point? Well, I think they have to make the playoffs. I think if they make the playoffs, he'll be a nominee. I mean, he's a 921 goaltender with a 1915 record, uh, 2.5 goals against average, which isn't great, but that's a, sort of a team stat, right? Um, but the 921 save percentage, and if this team makes the playoffs, I think he's a candidate. The problem is, is like Shesterkin is the best goalie in hockey right now, right? And then you've got UC Saros in Nashville, who's just outrageously been outrageously good this season. I, I mean, those two guys should be in with a bullet, but we also know this is the GMs that vote on this, right? So tends to be a, an award that's pretty sticky reputationally. Um, Andre Vasilevsky, obviously always a really good candidate. Um so we'll see. Like I think, I think the Canucks need to make the playoffs for Demko to have a real shot at being a nominee. Um, and I think, I think right now, anyway, I would probably expect um, the the three that I listed, like Shosturkin, Saros, you know, like Freddie Anderson. Jacob Markstrom has a million shutouts. Like Jacob Markstrom has ten percent of the shutouts recorded in the entire NHL this year, right now. That's going to make him a very strong candidate. Plus, he's got the bigger name. Frederick Anderson has been a Vezina nominee, right? Uh, Andre Vasilevsky. Like, Thatcher Demko's up there with that group. Uh, throw in, you know, maybe um, maybe like uh, John Gibson, too, right? Like, that sort of group off the top of my head is the, is the group from which the Vezina nominations should come from. For me, Shosturkin is in with a bullet. Saros should be in with a bullet. And then it's one of Anderson, Markstrom, Vasilevsky, Demko, Gibson. How does Demko differentiate himself from that group? Uh, especially when it's so difficult to overcome Vasilevsky's, like, we all know he's the best goalie in the world, regardless of whether or not he's been the best goalie in the world this season, right? So how does he get ahead of him? I think they need to make the playoffs. I think they absolutely need to make the playoffs. And that's a long shot. Like that's a 92% chance of not happening. So I don't expect Demko to be a Vezina nominee this year, but he's like building up his bona fides so that he may be in the years to come. Well, and it certainly looked like he was in the heads of the Leafs as that game progressed. Yeah, they got the two power play goals, but after a while you could see 
the frustration in their faces as chance after chance got denied. And, you know, that's a zone you want to be in as a goaltender. And you love having that behind you if you're if you're the 18 skaters. No, no question. I also love watch Demko on glove saves. He's like the anti Mike Smith. He has never sold a glove save once. Like, it's incredible. You know how goalies do the big like make the save look big um, glove wave like the, the save for the cameras glove save. And Demko, like, I don't think there was a couple times in the game I noticed it. There's a, Demko makes the glove save, waits for the whistle, drops the puck like it was easy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's and, and a- between that and the way he is in the media after, where everything's so understated, he certainly isn't helping his own case no, as this goes. No. But ultimately, you've got to get into the playoffs, and that narrative of he carried this team and dragged them into the playoffs does well, have to weigh into his candidacy because the goals against average isn't going to be as elite as some just because of the chances they give up, right? So, but I mean, ultimately, expected goals in that game was what five point three. I know, ridiculous. So you know, what, like, what more do you need to say? Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, Drancer, we talked about Thatcher Demko and, and, you know, just the Canucks form in that last game and how Bruce Boudreau doesn't care. You touched on the Canucks' newfound first line, Miller, Horvat, and Besser. Um, Horvat playing center, Miller back to the wing. And, you know, it's a combination, given that these three guys have been here for a few years, that we've rarely seen. What do you make of how well they played together, how Bruce used them, because he's not a heavy matchup guy, and just whether we can expect to see these guys stick around together for a little bit longer. Yeah, I'm really curious to see that, actually. I, I thought they were great. I loved that line. I loved that line with um, then the Patterson hoaglander uh, Pod Colson line underneath it. I, I just thought they were great. Like, I thought the two-way game that all three played was pretty close to perfect for a game in which they spent a lot of time without the puck. Like, it was really smart. They're all really smart, hardworking forwards, and it worked against the Leafs. Like, you know, one thing I think got lost in that game is that Mrazek was good, right? Like, that was not a goalie loss for the Maple Leafs. Mrazek made some saves, man. The Canucks generated against the grain, and that line was at the forefront of it. Um, There was, in particular, a play that sprung... um, and that sprung a Horvat besser rush in which the Canucks got multiple chances and ultimately an Oliver Ekman-Larsen sort of quick, smart point shot too uh, against the grand. And Miller goes back, wins a battle, uh, another one of those similar to Dickinson, like perfect pass uh, sort of behind him, right? Like if it hadn't worked, we'd be like, oh boy, but Miller can make those plays. And it was just as smart 
and as clever and as well executed as, as any defensive to offensive play you'll see a forward make at the NHL level. I felt like they were on that wavelength all night together. Um, I, I was really impressed. Honestly, I was really impressed. I loved that line together. I thought it worked really well against Toronto anyway. Yeah, it did. And, and when you look at, you know, always trying to find some other players to get going in and around this, and at times it's been Pedersen, at times it's been Garland, um, you know, and all of those three guys are, are people who can help others as well. So do we expect to see this go for a while? You know, I think Boudreaux's probably going to give that Hoaglander, Pod Colson, Pedersen line um, some run based on how he's discussed them, right? He's talked about them as a line he likes. Um, this formulation also puts Dickinson back in the middle, which I think they probably would like to try, uh, at least for a bit. Um, you know, it gives them... Yeah, I think we'll probably see it for a bit. Uh, Boudreaux seems to find things that work and stick with them for a bit, and it isn't too... Um, like, I don't think he's going to change the lineup after a loss anyway. Um, so yeah, I, I would expect we see it and I, I think it'll work. Like, I think those three will have some success together so long as they're playing together because they're really good players and you can see how it makes sense, right? You've got sort of the playmaking of, of JT, um, you know, you've got Besser's offensive creativity. You've got Horvat's strength down low and ability to attack off the rush. Like they make sense as a trio. It, the calibration makes sense to me. And I thought we saw it in practice on Saturday anyway. Yeah, see, I'm not convinced it necessarily makes sense within the context of the entire group, right? I mean, obviously, Dickinson was brought here to be a center. I think JT Miller has shown us much more at center this season than he did when we first had him a year ago uh, playing in the middle, right? I, I think he's been much more effective in that role, and I'm not advocating that he be a full-time center. But, um, you know, Boudreaux himself has talked about Lamico being a fourth-line center. Right, that whether or not he gets deployed that way, I think that's how he sees him bigger picture. So then you certainly don't see a scenario where Dickinson should be playing more than than Lamico, right? Just given how well the two are or aren't playing at this point in time. So while I agree with you that the trio makes sense, I'm not sure that it makes sense in terms of the big picture, especially when you get your second line of Pedersen and Hoaglander and Pod Colson. But that line doesn't necessarily last, and it got broken up quite a bit. And Hoaglander, what, eight and a half minutes, uh, nine and change for Pod Colson. So that line's not necessarily sustainable. So how that top line fits in with what Pedersen's ice time looks like five on five and who he plays with, you know, I'm, I'm not sure it's necessarily comfortable all the way through their lineup for those guys to play extended minutes together. Maybe not, but like you've got you've to give Dickinson some run here, right? You've got 35 games or whatever it is before the offseason you've got to see if dickinson can play for you like you've got to figure it out because based on what he's shown so far that's like a problem to solve as opposed to something that he can bring no, to your you team do, you just the... said like, we're, we're not talking about big picture right bruce's job is to get in now right his job yeah. is to win games now whereas that's now true. you're talking about a bigger picture question well, that, that needs to get solved that yeah we'll work. see we'll see when Highmore gets back but i think when Highmore gets back you've got, you you say the logic is we've got four lines we like well then you better you then you better play that second line a little more the Pedersen line yeah yeah i mean i agree with you i think like that 14 line minutes has to, is not good enough for Pedersen in a game like that no well, and and the their deployment against the islanders was insufficient too in my opinion especially in the third period so yeah i mean i agree with you 
Uh, but I think what you'll probably see is them try this and try and roll four lines and see if that gives them like a, a, a good top end and four lines that can skate and play and score. Um, maybe that gives them an edge, right? Like your third line's a little slower, but the other the other four lines have some speed or the other three lines have some speed. Um, you've got one sort of more offensively calibrated line with the young guys, and then you've got that more checking-oriented line with Highmore, Mott, and Lamico. Uh, that makes sense to me. I mean, I bet we'll see that tried for a bit, and I won't be shocked if Dickinson's the low man in ice time. Uh, should they stick with that for a bit? Like the low, like the guys getting fourth line ice time might end up being Dickinson, Hoaglander, Pod Colson, right? Because you could always have Pedersen take some additional shifts with Pearson and, and Garland. Sure. Um, that would be that would be my guess. Like that would be what I'd expect in the event that they stick with it for a while. And I honestly, I think they should. Like I don't think I don't think you can afford to shore up third line center at the expense of a of a top end that gets it done. You got you to figure out a top end that can give most team trouble. The Canucks haven't had that this year. They, when they've had success, like the lotto line was going and they had that. They had like a top end that causes problems. Ideally, you want to win the game at the top end of your lineup, right? Um, but obviously that gets difficult against tougher and tougher competition. That's why we see third lines make the difference in the Stanley Cup playoffs, right? But you want a top end, ideally, that can, that can win you games. And then... You know, you want the supporting layers to come in underneath that and, and also be able to do a job. Certainly, you want a second line that can score, can punish mistakes. You definitely want a third line that can punish mistakes. Um, you know, this approach sort of just gives the Canucks some supporting pieces, some ability to grind out points the way they want to. And, and we'll see if it works. I, I mean, the, 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 it's a really steep climb, right? Like, it's not, it's not five points out. As everyone knows, right? It's more like ten. Uh, ten. It's a, you have to you have to make up ten games of pace, uh, uh, prorated over eighty-two games uh, with thirty-five games remaining. It is a big, big ask. This team is going to have to win a lot of games, but they've come out of the All-Star break and they've got four of six points, and you know that's on their way to the seven of ten they need. And they've got the Sharks and they've got the Ducks. And those probably aren't even the teams they're chasing, to be totally honest with you. But they're teams they're chasing. And so we'll see how they do this week. But, um, you know, as Boudreaux tries to grind that out, I think keeping Dickinson at third line center, um, you know, I'd still expect him to be lower in ice time than Lamico, right? It's just how they take rushes. But you can see how it makes sense. I don't think you have to. I don't think you have to shore up third line center at the expense of a first line, though, that I thought played really well against Toronto. Overall, you mentioned they've won two or three coming out of the All-Star break. They've won two or three without Quinn Hughes, who they're going to get back on Thursday. And that in and of itself is a massive win to to win two or three games without your best skater. Right. Without Quinn Hughes. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. It's good. Uh, I mean, really good. It showed. Like, I thought they missed Quinn Hughes a lot. <laughs> I don't think they played very well without him. Right. But they got the points. But stylistically, you know, we talked about what Boudreaux does believe he needs to do with this roster. How much does that change when you can play Quinn Hughes 25 minutes a night? Well, a lot. Quinn Hughes totally changes the gravity of games. But, you know, you can't be that dependent on one guy to play your style. Right. That's not how hockey works. It's too physical. It's too high contact. Um, you need to be able to win without him and and it was interesting too like they didn't even try to approximate what Hughes brought by bringing in a guy like Rathbone or, or 
whatever, right? They they were just like, okay, we're going to have to win a different way. And they kind of adjusted and adapted to that and, and tried to play shutdown hockey. And, you know, for the most part, it worked. I don't know that it worked on form, but it certainly worked uh, in, in terms of results. And now they live to play another day and they'll have Hughes in the lineup for a pair of games against some California teams. And, you know, it's just going to be one of those. We'll revisit it in, in two weeks and they'll probably like, here's here's an amazing thing. Do you know how many games in a row the, or how many times the Canucks have won games in a row since the uh, eight no streak, the Boudreaux bump streak ended? Tell me once. Since they, they, they beat they beat Nashville and Washington in those back to backs to salvage that five game road trip. So over the last 16 games, basically since the calendar flipped to 2022, the Canucks have not won consecutive games. It's been loss, win, loss, win, loss, win, loss, win for six weeks now. 16 game stretch, uh, 538 point percentage, which would not be top 16 in the league over the last 16 games. The last like if you take out if you take out the eight-game win streak that Boudreaux sort of authored to begin his Canucks tenure. And I, I mean, it's, that would be completely arbitrary, and I don't think you should do that. But if you do, like this has been a 500-team, 530-point percentage team since, uh, since the calendar flipped. And so, you know, they've been the picture of inconsistency. Um, at some point, you need to make the determination, right? Like management needs to make the determination. Do we care to give this group a chance? Right. Or or do we need to pivot and build something durable for the future? For me, it's a no brainer. Like that should start as quickly as possible. But, you know, we'll see how this club, this club, which loves its shortcuts. Right. Never met a shortcut. It didn't want to take uh, has never had like Google Maps be like, you can save four minutes taking this route. Oh, you got to give you got to give Rutherford credit, though. You can't hang all that baggage of of the bending air on, you know, the club. I'm not. It's not about Rutherford. Yeah, it's, it's about, about the ownership. organization. I, I know it's you're talking about, about organization. Ownership. Yeah, I'm talking about a franchise that loves its shortcuts, loves them, loves them, addicted to shortcuts, addicted to short-sighted. Uh, you got to give you got to give Rutherford an opportunity to get that right. Like you can't just you can't hang the history of the organization you, on him. Can what you? do you mean? He doesn't he have to navigate the history of the organization? Isn't he still navigating with ownership? You don't think ownership wants to see a team make the playoffs, especially after they've dealt well, with sh- sure five do, home but- dates. They've had six home dates. They've had six home dates since mid-December, Farhan. Yeah, but the fact 50, is... 50% capacity. They have and brought they just in, changed management. But they brought in credible management for a change. Right? This isn't Jim Benning. They brought in well, expensive and, but, management. And that's the whole point, right? Is that, you know, when, when Francesco Aquilini got to the podium and spoke that day, we didn't even know that they'd get to a presidency. Right, like we didn't even know that they would be bringing in a president. They were that non-committal to changing the structure of the organization. So not right. only have they brought in a president, they brought in a president that has a ton of credibility around the league, that's got a proven track record for how to do things and do them right, and has been given the resources to fully flesh out a management team, which we never saw here before. To this point, you're right. So you like what you see, and I like what I see, but the test is not who you hire. For in the boardroom, the test is what you do on the ice, and I—I I mean, I'm pretty confident. I'm pretty confident that, um, at the very least, it's not a simple decision based on this organization's history, or not a simple conversation based on this organization's history. If you're going to make the types of changes that I certainly think are readily apparent, like uh, obviously necessary, 
for this team to get better. And I just believe that Rutherford has the jam and like the ability. Me too. You know what I mean? Like it's different. I do right? too. Like, ultimately, how did Jim Benning get his job? Because he told Francesco what he wanted to hear, and ultimately, he then made the decision to part ways with Trevor Linden and and move forward with Jim Benning. Right? Like that conversation doesn't happen that way with Jim Rutherford. It happens this way. I've done this before. I know what I'm doing. Stay out of my way. And I think he's got he's got the ability to do that. He's got the ability to do that. But we also thought Trevor had the ability to do that. Right? Like. Yeah, maybe but everyone, everyone who's ever had the jam to say no within this organization hasn't been long for this organization. Yeah. No, I mean, if we're talking in two I'm, years I'm sorry, and Rutherford's like, moved on and the management team has then fallen apart and everybody gets out of here, like everybody flies the coop. OK, we're having that conversation. But right now, I think you've got to give the benefit of the doubt to the I'm not going to say to presidency or ownership. I'm just going to talk about the higher. Yeah, I, I see. I just think this organization on this one front. Right. Will they do? Will they approve? Will they, in fact, go about doing the work required to take the longer view toward being good? Or will they get distracted by the shiny items the, of, a, of a, you know, slim playoff chance? Um, you know, I don't think this organization's earned any benefit of the doubt, even if Jim Rutherford has ours. You know, uh, it just it is what it is. You have to separate the individual from the organization. Organizations are sticky. They can continue to operate in a certain way despite changes in personnel and leadership um this club needs to prove it this organization needs to prove it that they have a plan and that they're going to stick to it uh you know i like what i've seen from rutherford this isn't criticism of him i'm just saying we've we've seen a decade of this we've seen a decade of the same choices being made consistently and until we see a change i don't see why we'd give that the benefit of the doubt you're asking for all right. Like we need to see it, don't we? Don't we, we, we do see need to, we we do need to see it. We do need to see it. I just for me, I'm just I've got enough respect for Jim Rutherford to make me believe that at least his process can be followed. Not telling you they're going to win a cup tomorrow. I'm just telling you that I I do believe that he's been given enough rope here to do the things needed to create a good organization to the point where ownership is going to let him have some run here. There has been consumer confidence restored in this marketplace with the people that have been brought in. The narrative and storylines around this team have been something ownership has not had for five years or longer. So I think they like that. And, you know, season tickets are going to be in a good place next year because of what they've done around this team. Whereas if they hadn't done that, you would have seen it in bottom line ticket sales. You're not going to see that next year because people believe in this management team and they believe in the direction the organization is going. So because of that, ownership doesn't need to freak out in this moment and go back and make the same mistakes they've done repeatedly since arguably firing Mike Gillis. Yeah, well, we'll see. So, so, like, so let's we'll see. see. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give that the benefit of the doubt right now because somebody needs to. Hey, uh, let's. See. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not prepared to, and it's not, it's not a lack of respect. It's that you know, fool me once, shame on me, right? Fool me a dozen times over the course of a decade, <laughs> uh, shame on you. Well, and, I'm, uh, I'm just and, less fooled now because of who they've hired and, and what that person's been allowed to do to this point. Listen, let's take a uh, break. We'll see. We'll see. I want to, I want to get into some defense as well, and then, and then I want to just like make you shake your head at your football narrative which is ridiculous it's only a kick a jump a block it's only a serve it's only a tackle a run it's only for the fans 
After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. A couple of D-men I want to talk to you about before we get into Super Bowl. Travis Hamannick, we touched on it earlier, but game one, I'm not sure what like blew me away more, that he played that quickly, that he was deployed as much as he was, or the performance, which I didn't think was bad, but the whole thing was such a reach to play him that much in those situations after one practice. It was a little bit of a, a reach, and it showed, right? I mean, the Canucks spent their their entire game in their own end with Hamannick on the ice, and he was pickpocketed pretty regularly. Um, I that was a really that was he got thrown into the fire. I'm not going to judge his performance too harshly. No, it, like it's not him; it's the more deployment and coaching around him. In my opinion, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I mean, playing six minutes against the Austin Matthews line, it felt like Toronto was able to get the matchup they wanted. On Vancouver's home ice. I uh, didn't love that. I didn't love that. Luke Shen, the hitting machine. Yeah, he's awesome. Like, Luke Shen's seriously, just awesome. Like, he's just, he's making himself more and more valuable by the minute at the trade deadline for a guy who we thought his career was completely winding down. How can you not be impressed with how this guy is playing and what he means to this club right now? I am impressed. I, uh, I love Luke Shen. Like, I love Luke Shen's game. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Like Luke Shen's great. Luke Shen's great. Kyle Burroughs is great. Go cheap on defense. Go cheap in depth roles. You know, like we're seeing that proof of concept in real time. Burroughs and Shen or Pullman and Hamannick. Take the contract values out of it. Who would you rather have? Oh, it's not even close. Not even close. And now when you put the contract values on it and you realize the difference is, you know, literally 1.35 million in committed salary for over two years versus um, and that's because Burroughs isn't even on a one-way contract versus 5.5. It's like, Oh boy. Oh boy. What a, what a mess. Yeah. I mean, nothing else to say, like what a mess. But when you, and when you talk about decisions they've made on guys that are replacement level players, this just underscores that, doesn't it? Well, I thought about that a little bit while watching Mitch Marner play. Right. Cause I'm like, Mitch Marner has these turnovers that just drive me nuts, like absolutely batty. He was incredible. I thought he had a great game. And the way that he can dissect defensive structures when he's got the puck on in zone play or off the rush. I mean, he's he's ridiculously good. And yet I watch him play and I think that is there goes an eight point five million dollar player, not an eleven million dollar player. Right. Like he is not Austin Matthews. Categorically not. And yet. You know, for all the criticism that Toronto's cap structure takes, like who would you rather? What would you rather do? Pay an eight point five million dollar play, overpay an eight point five million dollar player by two point five million, or pay any middle class guy two point five million? You know, like look at the middle class guys on this roster and tell me you wouldn't be better off paying and overpaying an elite player by a factor of a of a million or two. Like it's not close. The idea that that's some catastrophic mistake because now the Leafs can't go out and make the same mistake that everyone else does. It's like, what are you talking about? 
It's one of the worst takes in hockey that we hear three times a week. Um, you know, the middle class doesn't in in a hard cap system. You've you've got to kill the middle class. It just is what it is. You got to go star, stars and scrubs, and you've got to get the right scrubs. Like it is what it, it's it's just a fact of life. I don't like it. It it's how the stru- system is designed. You have to be good at it. The best teams are really good at it. The best times fi- the best teams find Burroughs and Shen and Kasha and Camp and a lot of the players who played a big part in the game that we saw on Saturday. Um, that that that's how it that's how it has to run. You can't be overpaying your Pullmans and your Hamonics and your Dickinsons. You just can't. It kills you. And if you do it four times after having traded a bunch of those types of contracts for like one that lasts forever for a fifty-six million dollar liability, <laughs> like the Canucks did, and then make the same mistake again, you know. But you just want to give them the benefit of the doubt, right? Right, far. No, it's a different management team. It's a, you can't tell me that. You can't tell me Rutherford would have made the same decision. Give me a break. Uh, I know. I'm just kidding. It's uh, just funny. All right, let's talk NFL. Go ahead, make your argument. The floor is yours on Logan Wilson, please. Uh, I've just never seen in crunch time a call that bad at, at, in a championship game. Like I, I literally, I'm racking my brain trying to think of it. Um. That was a brutal call, just a, a wild call. And it resulted in the Rams having six chances to punch it in. I mean, what, what's the point? It's ridiculous. Now, look, I know the T. Higgins face mask was a brutal missed call. I mean, I was fine with it because it made me a lot of money. But I was still like, that is a brutal call, a tough break. But if that goes against the, uh, the Bengals, they, it's second down. It's second and 15. Answer. At the start of you, the second you were, quarter, you were, you were trivializing and minimizing what was the most egregious call of the game, and that's why the thought of this no, Logan no, Wilson call being being part of infamy is not going to happen because it was the second worst call in the game by far. Well, sort it, it was the second worst call of the game, but it was by far the higher leverage call of the game by far. I'm going to disagree with you. Why? How can you disagree with that? That ended First of the all, game. It did not end the game. Like, see, this is the bullshit of it. It did not end the game. There was a minute and a half and two timeouts left. That is the moment where legends are made. And Joe Burrow and that offensive line couldn't get it done. We've seen that through two weeks in these playoffs. Yeah, specifically the the offensive line. No problem. Yeah, no problem. It's like, let's let's you want to talk about leverage. Here's what's true. The Cincinnati Bengals offense in these playoffs was completely overrated. You know how I know? Five touchdowns in three games heading into the Super Bowl. Five in three. You think that T. Higgins touchdown, second down? Give your head a shake. This team doesn't score. They don't score touchdowns. Immediately after the T. Higgins play, they got a gift interception on a drop pass. And what happened? Aaron Donald ended the series with a sack and they settled for a field goal and they didn't score again. Do not Mm -hmm. minimize that T. Higgins play. Second down at your own 25-yard line? They're not scoring because they didn't score. They don't score. That is the Cincinnati Bengals in they these get, playoffs. They get chunk they, yardage, man. They uh, get they chunk get ch- yardage. Yeah, and they would have settled for a field goal. And they would have yeah, settled maybe, for maybe. a field goal. Right? They like, definitely don't, aren't good in the red not, zone. Do not minimize that T. Higgins call. And well, here's they, the deal with the Logan Wilson call. It was a bad call with context. In and of itself, in a vacuum, it wasn't a bad call. 
It was a borderline call because if you look at, at it, at that you time and, in the game, at yeah, that stage of context, the game, it is talk, a brutal you're, call. You're, you're telling me context, and you are right. You yeah. know why it's a bad call? Because on the previous play, when Pratt did the exact same thing on an in route to Henderson, it was a worse hold. You can call that. You can call that play called. You can call that twice every down but, in the NFL. But you that, know this. But that, you're right. But that point is, you know, on the touchdown that got called back because of the offsetting penalties, the hold that occurred at the edge in real time lasted less than one second. Lasted yeah. less than one second. Well, but so I thought again, they got that right. I thought they sure, got but, that right. Okay, but again, when you look at the number of holds, offensive linemen, and if you don't think Cincinnati's old linemen with that mismatch got away with holds all night, Oh my goodness. So I'm telling you the reason why that call doesn't stand your level of egregiousness is because it wasn't a horrific was call brutal. without context. So if a, you look a, at it, if, if you and I look at the play, a, a flow can, ruining disaster, you it and was I can, brutal. You listen, it was, it was off because they hadn't made that call all game. I yeah, can't argue was, with you. It was a wild call. dude. I can't, I at know that but, stage of the game, a wild call. It, now I will, I say though, I agree with you. If PI still lived, it only lasted one year on interference calls. That call doesn't get overturned because if you look at it right. in and of itself, Wilson on the break, put his left arm and hooked him. And then he put his right arm on him. And then after that, he's about to make a play on the ball. So he removes his right arm to reach and his left arm just becomes a brush. So everybody's like, oh, they're like, how could they call that brush? No, no. On the break, he hooked him. Clear as day. Now, did that happen on a myriad of other plays and should yes. have been called in that late? Totally no. agree with you. Totally agree with you. But the point is, because you need that context, doesn't mean you can say it was the wrong call or an egregious call or just a flagrant miss by the officials. I you thought it was a context. No, I thought it was worse than that. I thought I don't think it was a flagrant miss. It, I thought if you it was, and I, if you and I, I thought watched it was the, the play, first application, I thought it was the first application of that rule all game and at a moment that basically gave the Rams the game winning touchdown. Like they you know, I thought I thought frankly that it was mostly like in that situation and considering it everything. I actually think that should be a great defensive play and the Rams have a pressure situation to punch it in, which they probably do. Cooper Cup gets open every play. Like He's incredible. So, so, but, but again, you're talking and about then, that penalty. And then you, and then you get the storybook ending you deserve. Then you who, get the storybook ending you deserve. You did get the storybook because for you, like no, this play is me, not going to stand the test was, of time. It is uh, not going to stand the test. Listen, it was abysmal. When, when the game ended. So I have an app here that I watch down in the U.S. where I watch these games. Okay. So I was watching on the Cincinnati NBC affiliate. Okay. Yeah. And that play doesn't get mentioned for the first 30 minutes. For the first 30 minutes on the Cincinnati affiliate, I then go watch SportsCenter with SVP. Barely gets play outside of the highlight package. Like, there's no analysis on that play, okay? Then I watch the regular version of SportsCenter after that. It gets no analysis on the play other than to say, I, you know, in the highlight pack, the T. Higgins thing and this thing. On our publication, The Athletic, on The Athletic Pulse, you go right now and they don't separate between the two plays. And one happened in the third, in the start of the second half, and the other one happened at the end of the game. That play will not stand the test of times for all-time controversy. Like, if you think it does, you're crazy. It will not. Nobody will think about that play in six months outside of Cincinnati. And even then, outside barely. Of outside okay, of me. So, but I'm doesn't telling change, you, like... Doesn't change the fact. I've just never foot, seen... I've never seen... experts with way more chops than you and I 
Yeah. That play doesn't stand well, the I have test no of time. Chops. I have no chops. And I think I that, have some. I think you do too. And, and that you have play lots. from guys that have way more than me will not stand the test of time. Right. Well, that's you convenient. Want, that's convenient for a play that allowed the sports books to have the buddy, Bengals not win and the Rams not cover. How one, convenient. One third. <laughs> listen, a minute and a half. Think of these playoffs. You want to talk about storybook? Think of these playoffs. A minute and a half and two timeouts. So much confidence in Joe Cool that the head coach said, no, no, we weren't even thinking tie. We were thinking win. And, and you could tell by their play selection. Yeah, they yep. were thinking win. And that tells you, like, don't like the game didn't end. That wasn't like the final why play of the game. Why didn't Mixon? Why didn't Mixon have the short yardage run? On I didn't third get down? that either. I thought it should have been Mixon, not Pirine, for sure. That but drove here, me nuts. But he, and then he, like, why didn't Pirine try and catch the ball? Why well, was Pirine... it, there was a there was a low level angle of it? The high level highlight camera doesn't do how close that play wasn't. Like the ball, oh, okay. like it got, it was so low to the ground. Like he couldn't even dive to try to make that catch. If you looked at it on the low level, uh, on the field level replay. But um, I thought the same thing in real time. But you want to, like, you cannot take that moment, that borderline call and take the narrative away from just how incredible Cooper Cup was. The, the, no, the post pattern never. on that drive. The post pattern on that drive, a no-look pass by Matthew Stafford in triple coverage, a dime. They had nobody. The Bengals were lucky to be in that moment. No Tyler Higby, no OBJ. Oh, uh, the come on. For a oh, no, Dude. a midseason replacement and a replacement-level tight end. Come Man. on. His what backup injuries? was hurt. What, what massive hey, no, injuries. No, 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 no. What he, massive Tyler Higby was an important part of that team, and his backup also got hurt, so now they were down to the third. <laughs> OBJ was on his way to well. a... OBJ he played well. Been, he caught two balls. OBJ yeah, could have been hard to tackle. OBJ could have been MVP in that game at halftime. Yeah, you know what? You're not right? wrong. OBJ so, is incredible. I so love seriously, OBJ. OBJ gets brought in to be a third guy because they know they need an upgrade. And on day one of practice, Robert Woods blows his knee out. He gets elevated to number two. He got better and better as the playoffs went on. Cincinnati had everybody. Cincinnati had everybody. You go into that second half, and it's all we have is one guy, Cooper Cup, because we can't run the football. We have no other receivers. Ben Skoranek is trash. And oh, in the final drive, he gets targeted seven times on the final drive in double and triple coverage and well, makes every freaking play. That's legendary. A borderline missed hold or called hold doesn't change that. And then, you, and then, and then Aaron Donald. Are you kidding me? Aaron Two Donald's games amazing. in a row. He makes the play on third down, makes the play on fourth down, just like he did the previous week. That is legendary. And Joe Burrow it, had a chance to be legendary. His O-line <laughs> didn't let him. Don't tell me about this hold. It no, doesn't no, change no. those storylines. That, that, that hold was brutal. Brutal. The festival of flags to end a great drive. The best Cooper Cup play for me was the run with the cutback on his own 30. A gutsy, gutsy oh. call from McVeigh. And it's a brilliant cutback it's, from you, Cooper Cup. To, to win the first down. For me, that was, I mean, Cooper Cup did incredible things throughout that drive. His ability to always be open is exceptional. Like, I, I've honestly never seen anything like it. But the run, that was yeah, like the, the championship offensive play for I, me. I'm gonna, you're you're going to hate me for saying this after the fact. So, I, like, I, you know, I sit there and watch the game with my son and we're, Finally, I was actually excited because I wasn't at the game. I actually got to uh, to watch with him, which is a rarity. So we're going through the final drive and I'm I'm literally playing Tony Romo like calling plays before they happen, which it just generally doesn't happen. But in that play, they go for it on fourth down. I look at it before the play. I look at my son. I'm like, they should call jet sweep right here. And they called freaking jet sweep and he got it. 
And I'm just Damn. like, oh shit, I should be in Vegas. And Luke <laughs> looks at me and he's just like, he looked at me and he's just like shaking his head. <laughs> it was so funny. Like literally they get to the line of scrimmage and I look at him and say, they should check jet sweep right here. Well, and- so, so I, I had, first of all, first of all, with, what's really good is when the Bengals went down 13, three, right. I, uh, I placed a bet because the spread got to uh, Bengals plus six and a half. So I placed a bet that would cover my Bengals to uh, win outright plus the under. Right. Um, and so uh, I actually ended up ahead on the day. And I also ended up ahead on the day, partly because of your advice. I had Higgins at plus 5,000 to win MVP. And they were offering me like $150 buyout after he scored the second quarter touchdown. Because then he had two touchdowns. He had like 100 yards, right? Like he was yeah, yeah. Uh, Coop, Cooper Cup at the time only had 40, right? So the Vegas started to get a little nervous. And... um and I texted you and you said, no chance he wins it. Everyone knows it was pass interference. And so I was like, okay, but cash out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I relied on you and you helped me big time. And then Cooper Cup and Aaron Donald, plus Joe Mixon throwing to T. Higgins, plus the Matt Stafford. Did he throw two picks? Yeah, I did. <laughs> did yeah. Plus the Matt Stafford two picks. Um, I knew that I was going to win, but I had the prop that was, uh, that was anyone but a QB for MVP. Uh, oh, nice. I felt and uh, and so and so I ended up having a very profitable day, even though my big bet didn't pay off. Um, and it was honestly, it was a this football season was incredible. I loved yeah, this football season so much. The playoffs were great. I've I've gotten so much more into it than I've ever been in my life. And you know, I just was so disappointed to see this final drive, which included some really heroic plays, end in a way that felt so fucking dubious. And, uh, yeah, and, and, you know, you're the only one, fe- I- you're the only one that's going to feel that in six months. And I'm telling you just like from a, like, you know, we talked about this last night and you talked about the worst ever in championship history. I can't think of a comparison. I well, literally but, cannot but, but, think, but understand this is a one and this is a one and done sport. It's not a best of seven sport. Right. But and that like, context matters like- because the early rounds matter. So for example, like I watched, I watched, um, the tuck rule 30 for 30 doc last week. Okay. And Tom Brady. Said which in which greatly overstated by the way the importance of the tuck play. Okay, I I, I don't know what you mean by that because it was uh, well, a, a bad we'll call and b a bad rule that got changed. You right? tell you tell the story and then I'll and then I'll but, uh, but, explain what I mean. But Tom Brady himself admitted right that if that had been called differently, I'm probably not the starting quarterback for the New England Patriots the next season. They would have said you know this young guy took a sack late in the game and drew and um. Uh, Drew Bledsoe probably is the starting quarterback for the Patriots the following year. Like Tom Brady said that, um, and and which tells you how a play that happened earlier in the playoffs has stood the test of time, right? And it's it's changed how we view it. The Nickel Roby Coleman NFC Championship game that allowed the Rams to get in two years ago, like that, stood the test of time as the worst PI uh, non-call ever to the point where it led to replay the following year. And you talk about like post-game coverage on a play like that. Those things matter. This did not get the oxygen you're giving it and it will not stand the test of time and it will not diminish what Cooper Cup did in that game, particularly on that final drive. Like you may not like it, but that play in and of itself is viewed as borderline, (laughs) not egregious. 
You've, you've said you've, you've 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 described me as disrespecting Jim Rutherford, which I'm not, by the way, because I'm skeptical about the organization and diminishing Cooper Cup, which I am absolutely not. Love the player. Um, wanted him to be MVP of the whole season. I'm glad he got the MVP in the Super Bowl that he deserved for the whole year. Twenty four hundred right? yards. 2, Incredible. Four hundred yards well, in twenty one games. And I games. love the I love the twenty TD, two thousand plus yards from scrimmage. He's also the yak like champion of the world, right? And and he's the first guy to do both of those things: the two thousand plus yards, the twenty touchdowns, and win the Super Bowl. Other than is it Emmett Smith and Terrell Davis? So he's the first wide receiver to ever do it. Yeah, and, and it, uh, Jerry Rice once won the Triple Crown, uh, Super Bowl MVP, and Offensive Player of the Year, but it took him an entire career. Cooper Cup did it in one year. Right. Um. Yeah. I mean, I love, I love Cooper Cup. Period. I love Cooper Cup. I'm. I'm. I was happy to see that play out. I just think it should have played out. If it was going to play out that way, it should have played out on fourth down. Um, I, I, I just thought that the refs intervened to give them a million chances, uh, which which Stafford ultimately needed. And that's just how it is. That's just how that game played out for me. Um, well, he didn't need the million if the hold doesn't get called afterwards, right? Like, there's a lot of there's a lot of layers to that. Like, even the quarterback sneak, you don't think they thought in their mind, if he doesn't get it on first down, we're going to run the clock and force him to take a timeout? Like, there was a lot of nuance to that. So, yeah, on, on the surface, that one call. But if you tell me, give me fourth down at the eight-yard line, or... Cooper Cup would have scored. Or give me the Rams at the start of the half on the T. Higgins play. Who's more likely to score? Because you talk about leverage situations. And when you look at how that game played out and how badly the Rams front dominated that offensive line, uh, I like Cooper Cup or the Rams' chances at the eight-yard line more so than I do the Bengals at the 25 to start uh, the half. I I mean, I, I just think one ends the game effectively. It a minute and a half left. Two timeouts. Minute and no, a half. I, I know. Legendary moments. I know. But you know that you knew that the Bengals' offensive line, line wasn't going to hold in that situation. Yeah, but you also didn't know that they would stop him on fourth down. And how about this? It should have been procedure. No, you don't. It should have been procedure. So you take it, you give me third and third and goal from the 13. I'll take that even more than fourth down at the eight. If they'd have been called correctly, because they missed the procedure call, because the center didn't snap it on time and the entire Rams line moved. It should have been third and 15, yeah. So you give me third and goal from the 13. I'm taking that ahead of fourth and goal at the eight. And I'm taking that ahead of, the rant or the those guys are second down well, at the start I don't, of the half. I think, given how I, bad I think, they were at scoring touchdowns. I mean, I mean, yeah, I I just I agree with you. I, I I do agree with you on on all of that. I just thought that that play was. I can't think of an analogy. Like I can't think of a the only analogy Brett that Hull. came into my head. Brett Hull was in the crease. Yeah, Jerome McGinley's Jerome McGinley's shot against uh, Tampa across the goal line. No, that's camera angle stuff. Maybe. But we're talking about we're talking about an but agreed market. Like I watched Seattle in the Super Bowl. Those aren't missed calls. I'm I'm tr- I'm trying to think of a ticky tack call. Well, whether in, a call, in crunch time, a ticky tack call in crunch time so, outside the lines of the rules, based on how the game had played played to that point, that was that that was that impactful on the outcome. But does it I call, can't, there's nothing in hockey because hockey, you know, they they let it go. They let them play. Um, the only well, thing I can think of is like some of Dwayne Wade's. Um, 06 uh, NBA championship victory over the um, over the uh, um, Dallas Mavericks. 
Like that's the only thing I can think of where it was like just like a comp. But even then, it yeah, wasn't but hey, one listen, play. Calls that don't get made also affect calls that like calls that get made. And I get don't it. Get made I the get same. it. So by, like Byron, saying, Michael Jordan pushed off on Byron Russell against the Utah Jazz. Right, and if so, so the if you, man, that, calling this that would have been same. absurd. But this is not the same. This is not even that obvious, right? So Cooper Cup was an MVP and he got a borderline call, right? Michael Jordan got like a blatant call. Dude, it changed the whole game. This is not. This isn't going to stand the test of time. No uh, one's going to care. This is Cincinnati's going to care. Cincinnati's going to care, and that might be (laughs) it. Like I I, I go back to the 2006 Super Bowl, um, Pittsburgh, Seattle. There were two brutal missed pass interference calls that the Steelers should have been called for against Jeremy Stevens in the end zone, right? And Seattle still remembers that a little bit. They ultimately won a Super Bowl afterwards, so they don't talk about it as much. But, like, nobody else in the NFL ever talks about that outside of Seattle. And if that's Cincinnati's little thing, which, again, watching the local cast, they didn't even talk about until 30 minutes into it. Like, see the headlines today in Cincinnati's papers. Like, that's not the headline. So it, yeah. it's just not going to stand the test of time when you look at egregious calls. In, in sport history, right? And like, I go back to the Tiki Tack last year. You go to that New Orleans, Tampa Bay uh, divisional round playoff and Tampa Bay's DBs got away with all sorts of clutch and grab. Well, and, then and the, so did the Seattle, the Legion of Boom. That was their whole thing. No, but I'm saying like there were controversial calls in that game. And then the following week, the storyline was how does Tom Brady, like how do the Packers not get the same calls that Tom Brady got the previous week because the Packers had three or four of that type of penalty in the NFC Championship game against Tampa. And that was a big controversy, right? It doesn't stand the test of time. And, no. and those were high-profile names, big-time quarterbacks, Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, doesn't stand the test of time. And this is the same, man. Well, It's for, not going to stand fair, the test of time. Fair, but for me, for me, I'm just saying, I've never, okay, seen, I, I've never seen a ticky-tack call called at that stage of the game that had that much influence on an outcome. But you admit that, was, that he did get his hands on him early. And it left a sour taste in my mouth. As a fan, as a, as a better, I was watching it thinking, that is BS. That is an absolute arbitrary call that they could make 10 times out of 10. Like, that's basically roulette wheel stuff. And I, I, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. And I, I don't I, think... It was the wrong and call. And I think that's fair. Yeah, it was the it, wrong it was, call. It was period. the wrong call. I'm just telling the you wrong that, the, time. that the level of egregiousness... Well, no, when I say it was the wrong call, I'm just saying because, like, it wasn't, if that call happens in the middle of the football game, we're not talking about it. If it happens at any point in the year, we're not talking about it. We're not even referring to it as a bad call. We call it a borderline call. Context makes it a tough one because they hadn't called it all game and because it was so such a critical time. Such but a critical con- time. But yeah. you and I both agree he got his hands on him early. So if you look at that play in a vacuum, which you can't, but if you look at the play in a vacuum, if you looked at it through the lens of replay, yeah. if that still existed, that wouldn't be the wrong it call. It was it it was it was a discretionary cataclysm. Right? <laughs> That's what it was. And and I, I hated it. I hated it. I, I loved this. I loved everything about this NFL season. I thought the NFL did a really good job even managing like COVID. Um, you know, they not not maybe to the um, extent of having this type of vaccination rate that the um, NHL did, but like we're getting into vaccine in a lot now, we're over no, an hour. No, on this I'm podcast. saying I'm saying it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to run a league these days, right? Like it's hard. It is. I thought yeah. the NFL had a great season in a lot of ways, particularly um, they led in a lot of ways with uh, with managing the Omicron wave, right? Like I'm 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 even giving them credit for that. The storylines, the entertainment value was through the roof. 
and I was just annoyed that it ended on on a discretionary ticky tack call like that. Um, I thought that sucked, and that's you know all I'm saying really. Like I'm not going beyond that. I just thought it was the worst call of that type that I've ever seen in a championship game, and that sucks. Yeah, all I'm saying is that it won't be remembered. <laughs> it won't. Like I'm getting the last word on this because it won't yeah, be remembered. Fine. It won't I, be remembered I, in big context. Whereas I will if, remember uh, it, like the tuck, <laughs> like the tuck rule, and you know, Roby Coleman on this uh, NFC champ, like those things will get remembered. This one that won't get remembered, um, because right. we both know he got his hands on him early. Everything else, is, so everything else is gray, right? So I'll give uh, you the last word. I want to change gears though. I've already put fifty dollars on the sand on the LA Chargers. Excuse me, the LA Chargers to win outright uh, the next Super Bowl. Wow. Plus okay. twenty, plus twenty two hundred. So they like have pretty low odds, you know. Like there's a lot of favorites ahead of them. So the Chargers are my value pick. Um, wow. I feel like Justin okay. Herbert. Justin Herbert could have like if they've improved. All they need is a run defense. You can improve your run defense. Yeah, I think they might need a little more than that. But um, what what else do they need? Uh, they don't have elite receivers. Uh, yeah, like you compare their receiving core to the top ones in the league, and they don't measure up. Um, you know, Mike Williams is like UFA. Yeah, like I'm looking at, like I look at them, and I and I look, I like Jacob Her- or Justin Herbert a lot. I just don't, th- and their their offensive line is is solid, but just the pieces around them, they built it completely opposite of the Bengals, right? Like the Bengals went with sizzle, not steak, and now yep. they're going to go fix the steak. And yep. you know, and the Chargers have tried to do it a little bit differently, but I, I just think there's a lot of holes there. And here's the thing for Bengals fans, I'm telling you right now, they're not getting to the AFC Championship game next year. They're not getting to the AFC Championship game next year. That team Probably might not. not. That team might not win the NFC North next year if the if Baltimore's healthy. Like there are holes on that roster that while they're young and we all assume, try telling a Canuck fan that after 2011. Like it's yep. No, they, I agree do, with you. Do, I agree. They're with you 100%. in a murders row conference. They're, they're going to be a good anymore. offense, though. They will. And they'll improve that group, but there's holes there. Uh, we yeah. have gone way over. Chip's like way waiting to get over. on her next show, and you way know, over. like she's getting sour. So I, I do need Sorry. to get our. Are we going to do the next one before the scent, before the sharks game, or after? I think we uh, let's Friday. do it after. Yeah. yeah oh, we'll wait till- maybe we maybe maybe we record post game. Sure. What if we what if we record post game so we have two games to react or one game to react to, and it goes up like first thing in the morning. Fine by me. All right, man. Well, All be right, well. Here. Be well. I hope no one holds you uh, as you go about your business today. Um, and if they do, I hope you get the benefit of a completely arbitrary ticky-tack call that sullied. It's, va- it's Valentine's Day. I expect <laughs> to be held. Mike, Michael Russo joins Ian Mendez and guest host Julian McKenzie Monday on the Athletic Hockey Show. Jacob Truba of the New York Rangers is Greg Custance and Sean Gentilly's guest on the Athletic Hockey Show on Tuesday. As for us, thanks for listening to this very extended version of the VanCast. I thought we could complete the football talk in about a five to seven minute window, but we gave you lots nope. of hockey before that. So you can't complain if you just came for the hockey because uh, <laughs> you, you, you got lots of meat on the bone there. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to leave a rating and a review. And right now, get annual subscriptions to The Athletic for just $3.99 a month when you visit theathletic.com slash thevancast. The VanCast returns on Thursday late night or Friday early morning, however you want to look at it, ahead of the Canucks game in, or after the Canucks game in San Jose on Thursday before hosting Anaheim on Saturday night. Heck, we didn't even talk about the halftime show. So uh, it was awesome. It was it. it was so good. Thanks for so listening, good. and we'll talk to you later in the week.